Well, good morning. Hey, Shannon and I are excited to go up and walk the Mooresville Prayer Trail immediately following this service with our family of six, actually seven. My mother-in-law will be joining us. She's here this morning. You didn't know you would be joining us, Juanita, but we just decided to go walk the prayer trail. And uh, so here we go. Hey, welcome uh, to Grace. We're glad you're here this morning. How many of you thought that our students who lead us in worship once a month on the fourth Sunday hit it out of the ballpark this morning? (laughs) Shannon leaned over to me and she said, Zach, doesn't this make you excited about the next generation in the church? And I said, man, this makes me excited. Yeah, what talented, uh, genuine, worshipful souls we have that lead us in worship. Each week, it's just remarkable. Before we get started into today's message, I'd like to hold a brief and duly called church business meeting for the purpose of ratifying new council members. Our church council is comprised of men and women from three campuses and with rich diversity in corporate and church experience. Before we seek ratification of new council members, I would like to honor and recognize our three outgoing council members who have each dedicated four or more years of their time leveraging marketplace acumen and spiritual giftedness to ensure that our church stays financially healthy and laser-focused on reaching the lost and advancing the mission of Jesus. And they are these, David Hinkle and Gary Smith and Albert Wong. They have each donated two to three hours of their time per month in meetings, as well as the time to prepare for such meetings and have wrapped all church matters in prayer. This is an unpaid role. This is a largely unseen role, and it has been faithfully fulfilled by each of these individuals. Would you help me show a hearty appreciation this morning to David Hinkle, Gary Smith, and Albert Wong? And by coincidence, they are all three balcony dwellers. So pat yourselves on the back up there, guys. Of course, each year as council members roll off, we position new council members to replace them and to be ratified by our partners according to our bylaws. And these three new council members that we are recommending to you are Rick Guerra, John Hardikoff, and Renee Kelly, whose pictures and bios are on the backside of your worship guide. According to our bylaws, we've provided at least two weeks' notice for this meeting to provide ample time for the expression of concerns, and I am delighted to report to you that we have had no such concerns, concerns excuse me, expressed. Also of note, 
is that parliamentary procedure is not required for a church membership meeting in the way that it would be for a board or council resolution. Nonetheless, I have chosen this morning to incorporate it minimally to convey a sense of meaning and formality to give confidence to the process. So I will now call this duly called meeting to order and welcome a motion by one of our partners to ratify to the church council, Rick Guerra, John Hardikoff, and Renee Kelly. Would anyone so move? Thank you. And do I have a second? Thank you. And all in favor, say aye. All opposed, same sign. I'll give you eight or nine more minutes. <laughs> Very good. Motion of at least a 51% majority has passed. With that said, a carried motion, our duly called business meeting is now closed. Now, was that the most efficient church meeting you've ever been a part of or what? <laughs> Would you help me congratulate Rick Guerra and John Hardikoff and Renee Kelly? Well, with that, if you would turn in your Bibles this morning to Colossians 2, we will be reading several verses shortly and throughout our morning, additional ones. And if you're visiting today, you have arrived on week three of not only a new sermon series, but a new season in the life of Grace Covenant Church. In the new season, we are calling uncharted. In fact, we have an adventure guide for this season, and if you have yet to receive an adventure guide, would you lift your hand up tall this morning? We have folks on the main floor and the balcony. If you've yet to receive an adventure guide who are passing those out to you, hold your hand high so that we see you. Make sure your hand is seen, and we'll be sure to give that to you. We also have Spanish versions. If you'd say in Espanol, per favor, we'll make sure to get you the correct version this morning for you to read. And if you're worshiping at home, or if you'd like more information, you can go to uncharted.gracecovenant.org, uncharted.gracecovenant.org. Org, and there's additional info there. There is a digital, a digital adventure guide and other resources. The QR code, in fact, if you have a hard copy, is on the back cover. What is Uncharted? Quickly, I'll summarize that we have a primary and secondary goal in this initiative. The primary goal is that 100% of those of you who call Grace Covenant your home church would reflect Jesus and his kingdom having first place in your heart through your generosity. Sometimes we may be tempted to think, 
well, I don't have much. How much will the small amount that I have really make? How much difference will it make? But this whole thing I want you to understand isn't about supplying the financial needs of God. How many of you know God's doing all right? He, he's, he's doing okay, all right? Um, this uh, isn't about meeting the financial needs of God. God already has it all. It's about God's kingdom being prioritized in our heart. That's the primary motivation. In fact, in Mark 12, Jesus commends a woman for putting two mites into an offering plate. A mite is not, in this case, a bug. It is a small coin, not unlike a penny, were someone to put it in the offering plate today in 2024. It wouldn't have made a hill of beans difference in the outcome of that offering. And yet when Jesus saw what she did, he said, he said that her gift mattered more to the kingdom of God than all the gifts added up of the affluent and the way that they participated. Now that's remarkable. And the reason he said that is because to her, to her, that gift from her heart represented her first and her best. Church family, to the God of the heavens, $200 million is no more impressive than two mites. It's about our hearts. It's our heart that he's after. And because God does not have a financial need, if he spoke the world into existence, if he fed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes, if he told somebody to go and fish and retrieve a coin, the first fish you catch, there will be coin in that fish's mouth. Again, I think God is okay. I think God's doing all right. So the point isn't about what God needs. The point is what the gift reveals about the giver. While some gifts are valuable because of the good that they can do in the world and in the local church, other gifts are valuable for what they reveal to God about the giver. So the question for everyone here is, what represents for you a definitive declaration that Jesus is your first and that Jesus is your best? Because our primary goal, again, is 100% participation from the oldest to the youngest, from the richest to the poorest, from the newest Christian, the greenest Christian, to the most seasoned and mature Christian, that all of us answer that question. What represents first and best and act on it? That's our primary goal. Now, our secondary goals in both local and global missions and also at each of our three Lake Norman area campuses, uh, the Adventure Guide provides a general idea of, but I'll give you a little more detail. In Denver, North Carolina, what we call East Lincoln County, East Lincoln County, therefore it's our East Lincoln campus, it's projected to grow by 40% over the next 10 years. How many of you know that's a big bucket of people that's projected to be dumped out 
on the west side of the lake. Right now in Mooresville, there is directly across from our location 482 brand new apartment complexes being built, again, literally across the street from an 11-acre parcel that God, in his good favor and grace, gifted to us in 2022. Isn't that remarkable? how God has positioned his church to reach those people. So we have highways that will soon be widening on the bottom side and the top side of the lake. And both our East Lincoln and Mooresville campuses need more space so that we can get out of the stalemate that we're in and continue to grow past our limitations and reach the lost with the gospel. This is what we believe God wants us to accomplish. And there are some goals for the Cornelius campus as well. Do you believe with me that the souls of lost people are worth more than anything we could part with? Amen Amen and amen. Well, we're going to dig a little deeper into Paul's letter this morning to the Colossians, which is on how to make Jesus preeminent or first in our lives. I told you in week one, that Colossae was well known for its polytheism, for its superstition, for its vast array of temples. It was the buffet city. It was the golden corral of all gods. You choose what gods work for you there. And by gosh, if we don't have them, just give us 10 more minutes in the kitchen and we'll bring a few more out for you to choose among. If you need fertility, look no farther. We have a God for you. If you need health, it's here in the shape of this God. If you need protection or provision or prosperity or posterity, look no further. We've got coupons and we've got Groupons. We've got it all. Just come see us and we'll assemble whatever package you need. Just express your deepest desires and our religious pluralism will fit the bill. It was a Jesus plus mentality. Jesus plus other religious rituals, even Old Testament Jewish ones. Jesus plus little G gods that you'd put on your nightstand. You need Jesus for sure, but... What are you going to do about all your other needs? And the Colossians understand they did not outright reject Jesus Christ. They didn't. In fact, they welcomed him. But they here's the key. They didn't find him all sufficient. And so that they believed that they needed to look elsewhere. They, they needed to fill in the gaps with other deities. Jesus and Old Testament laws, Jesus and mysticism, Jesus and Build-A-Bear. And Paul says effectively, no, Christ himself is enough for you. Jesus is enough for you. Church family, if you are here and you have subscribed to religious pluralism, you need to know that Jesus alone is enough for you. If you have subscribed to Jesus plus creeds, Jesus plus orthodoxy. 
Jesus plus white witching, which is apparently a growing trend. Jesus plus incantations. Jesus plus sorcery. Jesus plus tarot cards. You need to know that there shall be no other gods before Jesus. There is none besides Jesus. Jesus is above it all. No one is on the same playing field or plane as is Jesus Christ. There is deference in between between Jesus and all other gods. Jesus plus nothing, our guiding formula says, equals everything. In fact, will you say that with me? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Verse 8 of chapter 2. Paul writes, see to it from a prison cell, remember. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Don't take the bait, in other words. Which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the what? All the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to what? In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Paul says, in Jesus, you have it all. Amen? Amen. In Jesus, you're full. What else could you lack? Paul writes, he is the head over every power and authority. How many of you are glad Jesus is the head over every power and over every authority? How many of you are glad that Jesus is above Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C. is not the seat of highest authority. Beijing is not the seat of highest authority. Moscow is not the seat of highest authority. How much time can we spend dithering and rolling and wallowing in fears about some place of authority possibly toppling when none of them are the place of highest authority? The ultimate place of authority is the throne of God in heaven. And Jesus is firmly seated there, ruling and reigning, governing the affairs of men. In verse 16, Paul goes on to condemn both religion and mysticism. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Don't let them get too stuffy on you. Or with regard to some festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. How many of you know we don't worship angels, we worship Jesus? The angels are subordinate to Jesus. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen, their visions, they're puffed up with idle notions of their unspiritual mind. 
they've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. And then verse 20 is his main salient point. Since you died with Christ to the elemental, elemental spiritual forces of this world. Why, why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Why? Paul's asking, why do you live as though you still belong to the world when you have Christ? Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. Since then... You have been raised with Christ. How many of you are glad you've been raised with Christ? We use that language at baptism. We're raised with Jesus. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts, set your hearts on things where? Above where Christ is, who's seated at the right hand of God. Church family, one day every knee will bow to Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. Biden's knee will bow. Trump's knee will bow. Putin's knee, glory to God, will bow. She's knee. That rhymed. <laughs> President She's knee will bow to the living God. LeBron's knee, the king, will bow in the presence of Jesus Christ. Taylor Swift's knee. will bow in the presence of Jesus Christ. Travis Kelsey's knee <laughs> will bow in the presence of the living God. I don't know about you. I would rather bow in humility and reverence and honor today than in humiliation on that day. Because Jesus is Lord of all. How much better are we if we figure that out now? Look at what Paul says in verse 2. Set your minds then on things above and not on earthly things. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. For you died, you died. Now, not a physical death. That's not what he's talking about. What Paul means is that every attempt at saving yourself was crucified with Jesus Christ. You died. In other words, you've surrendered to Jesus. You've laid aside earthly longings. Paul continues, and now your life is hidden or enveloped in Christ. Friends, if our lives 
are now hidden in Jesus, we should no longer be looking for earthly things to satisfy us. We possess the one who is himself the very fullness of God. Jesus is the one who showed ultimate love. Jesus is the one who's already conquered the ultimate enemy. Glory to God. Jesus is the one who now sits at the ultimate place of power. We bow to him. It's in him that we have all that we need. Let's repeat our guiding formula. Are you ready? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Verse 4. And when Christ, who is your life, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Church family, there will be a day when the clouds roll back as a scroll and the trumpet will sound and Jesus will meet us in the air and he will wipe every tear from our eye. How many of you look forward to that day? Some of you who are going to go to Grace Feeding Grace this morning are hungry on that day, you will hunger no more. Amen. On that day, you will thirst no more. On that day, you will no longer struggle, glory to God, to find affordable housing around Lake Norman. In fact, you'll have a mansion there that will be paid for. How many of you are, glory to God, ready for no 15 or 30-year mortgages in heaven? Paul says, don't think about earthly things. Think about heavenly things. These words ring so true to us 2,000 years later. It seems like they're crying out from his tomb. Don't have an earthly perspective. Have a heavenly perspective. Don't reflect primarily on what you have or do not have on this earth. Reflect on the fact that you have eternal life in Jesus. That life is going to be a heck of a lot longer than this life. Now, like the Colossians, we in 2024 don't typically reject outright Jesus Christ. But we do have other little G-gods that compete with him. Not necessarily in the words that we profess, but in the way that we live The chief of which, I'll show you, is money. In fact, there's a book called God and Money. It's written by two Harvard business graduates who became Christians. And it was the first time in their lives, the first time in their lives when they became Christians, that they rethought, they rethought their relationship to money. 
they said when it comes to money, people have one of three relationships with money, and I'm going to tell you what they are, and not only am I going to tell you what they are, I'm going to read descriptions of these relationships with money, and I'd like to ask that you try and identify which one of these names and descriptions most resonate with you. Or if it describes the person beside of you, just lift your hand and <laughs> point quite dramatically over the head to you, your left or right. Here we go. Number one, the spender. These people believe money's greatest value is adding enjoyment, what? Today. Today. Not tomorrow, but today. So they spend their money on consumption and, and pleasure and entertainment and comfort because they're always seeking the maximum thrill or the maximum luxury. They may save some if they're responsible, but money primarily to them is the spice of life. It's what makes everything pop into color. Next, the saver. The saver. A saver is someone who, by contrast, thinks that money's greatest value is providing security for tomorrow. Thus, unlike the spender, the saver strives to limit consumption and entertainment and comfort, focusing instead on building wealth accumulation over time. Spenders view money as a tool for pleasure today. Savers view money as a tool for security and flexibility tomorrow. Third, the steward. The steward is someone who sees money primarily, primarily as a temporary gift from God, the Father of heavenly lights, to be used for the purpose of God. Primarily. Sure, they use some money to provide for their own wants, and sure, they use some money to provide for the future. But here is the real kicker or defining characteristic of the steward. The steward limits both their consumption and their saving in order to focus instead on advancing the mission and kingdom of God. Again, the steward intentionally, intentionally reduces the sizes of both piles in order to invest in what lives on in perpetuity in the life that is to come. Did you figure out which one you most naturally were? If you haven't, lucky for you, I have an eight-question quiz that I'm now going to escort you through. True story. So if you would kindly write the numbers one through eight in the margin of your notes. I know I joke often. This is not a joke. One through eight. 
All you're going to need room for is A, B, or C beside each one of these numbers. Here's question number one. You'll notice these line up quite conveniently with spender, saver, or steward. A, B, or C. Um, if you are confused, just listen. You'll catch on quickly. One, which one of these excites you more? Question one, which one of these excites you more? I'm only going to read each question once. I got places to go. <laughs> a, a four-star vacation across Europe. A, a four-star vacation across Europe. B, maximizing all your retirement accounts for the year. Or C, dinner with your pastor <laughs> who expresses heartfelt thanks for a new ministry that you invested in and supported. Four-star vacation, maxing out retirement accounts or sacrificial support of a new ministry. Do you see how this quiz works? All right, question number two. When you were a child, what was your tendency with the new money you received as a child? What was your tendency? A, buy new toys. B, save it in a piggy bank. Or C, give it to a friend in need or your family member or your church or your charity. Number three, you hear about a man at age 70, age 70, who's managed all of his middle-class income through very meager living and careful savings, and he now has, at age 70, a net worth of $8 million. Your first thought is what? A, what a waste He's 70 for Pete's sakes. He should have spent that money a long time ago. That would have been a lot more fun. B, wow, he really did well for himself. I hope that I can do that well for myself too. Or C, or C, you know, he may have missed some key opportunities for generosity along the way, along the way. Number four, success looks like, success looks like, A, experiencing great food and travel, living comfortably and driving a luxury car. B, retiring at 50 years of age. Or C, extending payoff to your mortgage and forgoing some luxuries in order to sponsor children through Compassion International. Number five, your annual bonus is twice the size as you thought it would be. Can I get an amen? What is your first thought? A, I'm headed shopping. B, I'm applying this to my mortgage. Or C, 
thank God for this provision. I can't wait to give a chunk of this away. Number six, the spending in my life is, A, effortless, effortless. I love the spending in my life. B, bothersome. I wish I could spend less. C, controlled. I feel good about the way that my money is being managed. Number seven, the saving in my life, not the spending, the saving in my life is A, bothersome. It's an inconvenience that gets in the way of me having fun. B, my saving is effortless. I love building wealth. Or C, my saving is purposeful. I have healthy and reasonable goals toward which I'm carefully working. Beyond that, I plan to give it all away. Number eight, the giving in my life is A, obligatory. The giving in my life, A, obligatory. Ugh, I hate it. I find no joy in it. Don't amen that, Miguel. <laughs> what is wrong with you? I'm going to start from the top. <laughs> the giving in my life is A, obligatory. B, formulaic. Formulaic, carefully calculated to the very cent to make sure I don't overpay. Or C, joyfully overflowing. That's what you meant to amen, right, Miguel? I knew that's what you meant. You were just early. You were just early. Now look at your answers. Look at your answers. If you have mostly A's, you are likely a spender. If you have mostly B's, you are likely a saver. And if you have mostly C's, Paul says you are setting your mind on things above and not on earthly things. Congratulations. Now, why do some have mostly sees because they see money not primarily as pleasure and not primarily as security in fact Jesus is both of those things to that person Jesus is pleasure and Jesus is security I don't need Jesus plus something I have Jesus Will you use some of it for pleasure? Sure. Will you use some of it for security? Sure. But see kind of people, see kind of people reduce willingly, willingly, joyfully the ledger lines in both A and B because they are most satisfied to partner with God.
In closing, I want to give you two biblical examples from Jesus' parables. The first is from Luke 12. I'm not going to read it. It's called the parable of the rich fool. For the most part, two guys walk up to Jesus and they're arguing over money and Jesus perceives that their lives are way too wrapped up in what they own. And Jesus says to these two guys, hey, take care and be on guard against all covetousness because life does not consist, help me finish it, in the abundance of your possessions. And then Jesus tells them a parable, which is an often fictitious story to illustrate a point. And I'll retell this parable, not in Jesus' words, but in modern day language, as did the book that I mentioned, God and Money. The stock options belonging to a manager, the story goes, they vested after a major run-up in the share price. And the manager thought to himself, what should I do? I already have enough saved to send my kids to college and my house is paid off and I maxed out my 401k every year. And so he said, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna open an investment account and create a passive income portfolio and I'll exercise my options and put the money, park the money there. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have a big enough portfolio to be financially independent and retire early and plan vacations and play golf. But then God said to the man, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And the portfolio that you have built, what is its value then? So is the one, Jesus said, who endlessly builds his net worth but is not rich toward God. The second parable, it's a really interesting one from Luke 16. It's called the parable of the shrewd manager. The titles change depending on what translation you're in, but it, it effectively goes like this. There's one account manager for this really wealthy man who was given his two weeks notice. He was effectively fired with a little bit of a runway. And so he was like, what am I going to do? I, I'm not young enough to start a new career. I've, I've grown accustomed to buying $5 Starbucks drinks every day. There's no way on earth I'm going back to Folgers. <laughs> so according to Jesus, he has this brilliant idea, and he calls up his boss's clients who still owe him money. Remember, he's still legally authorized to do this business for two more weeks. 
and he says, hey, I see here you owe my boss $100,000. How about you give me $25,000 right now? I'll give you an official debt, debt settled certificate and we'll just call it even. How many of you know he'd have been in a lot more hot water? Okay, but, but, but the irony's coming. Listen to what Jesus makes in terms of a point. Then the man tells them, and you remember when your 100K goes down to 25K, you remember me. You remember me in my next career. You remember what I did for you. Now, in any other situation, this would seem like completely shady advice for Jesus to give if he were, if he were making a point about good and ethical and fair business practice. But Jesus isn't making a point about good and fair business. Jesus makes this point. What? A wise manager. Why? Because he used an opportunity he knew was coming to an end, to an end his job, to prepare for his new reality. To prepare for his new future. To make friends for his new future. And Jesus says, and Jesus concludes, that is how you ought to be with your money in relationship to eternity. I mean, can you believe the Son of God told this story? How sketchy. But do you get Jesus' point? The point is that if you know your time in one reality is coming to an end, you've got to prepare for the upcoming and next reality. The permanent one. In other words, if we believe that what we believe is really real and that compared to eternity, life is a vapor, isn't it wise to leverage the few moments we have on earth for our coming reality, not our present reality? Jesus is saying you would not go to a holiday inn. You wouldn't go to holiday inn and decide over a three-night stay to replace the countertops with granite and buy a new refrigerator for the Holiday Inn and install a bay window for the Holiday Inn. The hotel manager would be like, thanks, buddy, for the upgrades. But why would you invest so much for a place you're staying in for such a limited time? Some of you play Monopoly. It doesn't matter how much you collect in the game of Monopoly. You can have six hotels on Boardwalk and Park Place combined. Or you can own that dinky Marvin Gardens. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Because why? At the end of the game, all the money goes back in the box. And at the end of life, all money goes back in the box. 
The question is, how are we affecting our next reality? Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that as we stand and we sing yet again, that you would continue to challenge us, Lord. Lord, the reason that our resources are the last flower to open to you is that it is hard, it is difficult for us to part with control and trust in you. Lord, I pray yet that you would enable us to trust in you more than we trust in our own resources. How silly. Challenge us. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.